Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. I don't know if you guys know this, um, and ladies, I don't want to be sexist. Um, we feel blessed to be your pastors. You, are, you guys are some of the most encouraging people on the face of the earth. Uh, we've, we've read through many of the cards and letters you sent us over the past week, and uh, we're just extremely humbled by your words of encouragement, and uh, honestly don't feel worthy of some of the encouragement you've given, but, um, but we are very, very blessed, my family and I, uh, to call this our home, to call you our church family, and uh, those of you watching from home or online or on TV today, um, we're blessed to have you with us as well, and uh, we're blessed that you've chosen North Main as your place of worship, at least for today. So, We've been doing a series on our vision and our mission as a church, and I think this is, don't quote me on this, but this is going to become a tradition for us every year, not to do the same sermons. I hate to pull a sermon from the archives and just do it verbatim. I'm just that, there's something in me that won't allow me to do that. So there'll be different sermons every year, but the reality is There's a thing called vision drift. Have you ever heard of it before? Or mission drift. What vision and or mission drift is that an organization or a church can have a a very lightning or laser-focused vision. But if it's not reiterated, if it's not um, kept at the forefront of the institution, the organization, or the church, what can often happen is good ideas brought to the table of a ministry can oftentimes shift the direction of the vision and mission. And so what happens is, until it's too late, you can often find yourselves way, way, way over here and going off the track from what you feel, what we feel that God has called us to as a church. And so our vision and our mission is simply stated this way. We, vision is this clear picture of what we want to see happen. What do we as a church want to see happen? We want to see people become completely committed followers of Christ. There's no other thing that we feel called to as a church. And the reason we feel that that is what God has called us to is because that is what Jesus left us with, his final words before he ascended to heaven. He says in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, go into all the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and remember I'm with you to the end of the age. We believe that that is our mission statement. We believe that a completely committed follower of Christ is one who knows Christ intimately, grows in him continually, and goes for him daily. And over the course of this month, you've been hearing aspects of that mission and of that vision. Today, we're going to be digging in on what it means to go for Christ daily. 
I came up uh, trying to figure out an illustration that would actually lead into the topic of today, and, and I found this, in, uh, and it's a true story about a lady by the name of Sadie, but Larry Pennings in a publication of the Wycliffe Bible Translators entitled, In Other Words, recalls a story about this lady named Sadie Seeker. S-I-E-K-E-R. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it, but listen to what she did. Sadie served for many years as a house parent for missionaries overseas. She served as a house parent for the children of those missionaries in the Philippines. She loved books. I can relate to this. If you've ever been in my office, there are, every wall has books on it. And it's not because I'm trying to show off, it's because I love books, not just to hold and to touch, but actually to read, because that's one of the questions I get oftentimes is, have you read all of these? And my answer is always the same. At least 75% of them I've read, the others are reference books. So I don't know if you know what a reference book is. You don't normally read it cover to cover. If you're actually getting into study of the word or something, you pull it open sometimes in the middle to find where you need to research. So, but yes, I can relate to Sadie. She loved books. Though she gladly loaned some of them out from time to time, and I do that too, um, and I have a little sign out on the side, and Christy usually never gives me my books back, but... I'm sorry, you just don't. I know where to find, I go, I go to her bookshelf in her office down the way, and I'll, there's my book, I was looking for that. Anyway, Sadie would loan her books out from time to time. Others that, others that she had that she treasured, she would never loan out. She would keep them in a footlocker under her bed in her missionary cottage where she was. After searching all around her, uh, one night while she was sleeping, she heard this crunching sound under her bed. And, um, and she, she searched all around. She couldn't tell it was coming from the bed, but she searched all around to figure out where it's coming from. She finally pulled out the footlocker underneath her bed, and to her terror and astonishment, mice and rats had been eating away at her most treasured books under her bed. All the books she had kept to herself rather than loaning out or using, had been lost to termites and rats and mice. The illustration here is this. What we give away, we keep, but what we hold on to, we lose. That's actually could be a very universal statement. In relationships, I'm, where Sarah Lee and I, my wife and I are at the stage where our kids are... are graduating and turning 18 and 20, and we have a 16-year-old now who's driving, and, and it's been a slow release from the time they were born. And it's, it's surreal, it's painful in many regards, it's nerve-wracking, it's scary, it's all of that wrapped up into one. Our oldest daughter's like ready to move out like two months ago, and she's, you know, toying with the idea of going and trying to find an apartment or a roommate, and a part of me is like, no, don't do that. Some of you are like, why not? Kick them out. Um, and back when she was 14 or 15, I was ready. But now that she's come back around as an adult and we're having adult conversations, we've reconnected and we're, it's painful. But what you let go of, you actually learn to keep and what you hold on to too tightly, oftentimes you lose. 
I see this often as a pastor, people who uh, struggle to have children, couples who have been trying to have children for a decade, and then they finally resign themselves to the fact after every fertility treatment and all of that, they just aren't going to be able to have kids the natural way, and so they give up, they decide, we're going to go and adopt, and when they adopt, miraculously, I've seen this in multiple cases, they get pregnant. <laughs> it's amazing how that happens. And you, it's not just in adoption or those kind of things. It's, it's amazing how God works and moves when you finally decide to say, God, whatever you want, I'm okay with, is when he finally comes in oftentimes and says, okay, now I can do something miraculous. So how does this fit with our context today? Generosity is what it means to go. Going for Christ daily requires generosity. And you're not, this is not a tithing sermon. You're not going to hear me tell you, you need to give more to the church. You need to pay your tithe, 10% of your income. You're not going to hear me say that. Generosity in this regard as we go for Christ daily is giving to others what we have freely received or have been given by God. Okay? So let's look at our at our passage again today, I read it to you earlier. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Actually, let's go back to verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then they came to Jesus and then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Here's the takeaway. I'm getting to the key point very early on in the message because I want to spend some time on the points. And it says, going for Christ daily. Hear me out. Listen to me. Going for Christ daily and making disciples is a disciple's mission. We established over the past three weeks what a disciple is. So what is a disciple? Those of you at home who may be watching today, do you remember what the definition of a disciple is according to the Greek word for disciple? What is it? What? A student. So the Greek word for disciple is methetes, and if you look at the actual translation of it, it is a student or a pupil. It's, it's get, the, get in your mind's eye, sitting in a classroom, learning from a teacher. Who is the teacher in this scenario? Jesus. And what do we learn or how do we learn from Jesus? Watching, listening, following. Jesus rarely stays in one place. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, did Jesus stay in one place and expect everybody to come to him? No, if you read the Gospels for what they're worth, Jesus was always on the move. Now, he would stay sometimes for a period of time in one place, but he wouldn't stay very long. When he was called into that aspect of ministry, his father's work at about age 30, and he got baptized by John the baptizer in the Jordan River, is when he set off on this journey. And it was a three-year journey, and he 
called his disciples instead of the disciples coming and asking if they could follow him, which was customary. If you were a rabbi, the disciples would come and put in an application with you. And they would say, could we follow you? And if the rabbi tested you out, kicked your tires to see if you were worthy after a long enough period of time and putting you through some torturous processes, he may then say, okay, yeah, you can be my disciple. Jesus did it the other way around because Jesus' ways are usually countercultural or upside down to the world's ways. And so Jesus called his, hey, I'll make you fishers of men. Hey, come out of that tax collector's booth. Follow me. You, I'm choosing you, I'm choosing you, I'm choosing. And this is what Jesus does even today through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you may feel it as a sense of conviction on your heart, that tug of conviction about the sin that is unrepentant in your life. That is the Holy Spirit, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, coming to you saying, I choose you. But in order to follow me, you have to give this up in order to save your life. You have to come to me. What does the greatest act of generosity look like? This is one of the verses that's held up in stadiums all across the world, specifically in the United States. Football stadiums, baseball stadiums, hockey arenas. What is the main verse that's held up? Okay, now you got, I'm good, this is good. Because the other ones I was asking, the rhetorical questions, you were like, so, but this one, John 3, 16. You've been there, you've done that. You know what it's talking about, right? So the greatest act of generosity was God's going from heaven to earth. He came for us. And we should go for him. So let's look at that in this context. Did you know John 3.16 is actually a part of a whole section which is a story about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees hated Jesus, at least by and large as a whole group. But Nicodemus is one of these curious Pharisees because he's like, I don't know. There's something about this Jesus guy that I don't agree with my Pharisee brothers. There's something about him. I can't put, can't put my finger on it, but deep down I know what he's saying is true. And so it says at the beginning of John chapter 3 that Nicodemus came and found Jesus when? What time of day? At night. In the darkness of the night. He's coming incognito. He's got his shawl, his robe around him, his, his prayer shawl over his head. <laughs> He's sneaking through finding Jesus. Why do you think he would do? Why didn't he just come to him in the middle of the day? He didn't want people to know. He didn't want his Pharisee brothers to know because then they would put him in the same camp as Jesus, who is a wine-bibber, which means drunkard, if you read that in the King James Version. He, he goes around drinking with all the sinners. He meets with the prostitutes, you know, the loose women. And the tax collectors, they're in a whole category by themselves. They're not just sinners, they are sinners with icing on top, right? They are, they are the chief of sinners. 
And so Nicodemus comes to him in the dark of night to probe Jesus further because he realizes he can't do this during the day without being ostracized by the group that he's a part of. You ever been there? You ever felt the peer pressure of knowing the right thing to do, but the group is doing something quite different? And so he goes to the dark of night. He meets with Jesus. They pull an all-nighter together. They literally do. And Nicodemus is starting to ask him these questions. And it's not to catch him so he could trip him up. Nicodemus really wants to know. See, the other religious leaders would come to Jesus with the technicality on the law, and they would throw it out to Jesus thinking he would actually stick his foot in his mouth, and they could catch him on some act to to have him arrested for under their own laws. But Nicodemus isn't doing that. He really wants to know. And so he starts to probe and ask Jesus these tough questions. And Jesus starts to tell him, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And they had this dialogue at the beginning of John chapter 3 about what it means to be born again. And, and here's Nicodemus' infantile mind thinking, so you're saying I have to go back into my mother's womb and come back out again? And Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. You're only born that way one time. You need to be born of the Spirit. Well, what's that? See, the Holy Spirit had not come in a permanent way because the day of Pentecost hadn't come. The promised one to come after Christ was the Holy Spirit. Jesus was present right now, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of truth. And Jesus is telling him, you need to be born of the Spirit. The only way you can be born again, you're born once into this world, but you have to be born out of sin. You have to die and be reborn. But in the process process of, of this conversation, Jesus comes to this one point that we now shout out or hold on placards at sporting arenas. I don't know why it's just, or any event like that. And even if you've not been a Christian or you've never had any experience with the church, this verse is probably very familiar to you. John 3, starting with 16, and we're going to go to verse 21 today. For this is how God loved the world. The New Living Translation is what I'm reading from today. For this is how God loved the world. Or for God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. So that who? Not just some. Not just a select few. But that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now that's a conditional statement. Go back to that again. Do you catch the conditional statement there? This is vitally important. We proclaim this verse as the epitome and the core doctrine of Christianity, but it is a conditional statement. It's not a universal statement. Everyone goes to heaven. And I'm not a hellfire and brimstone kind of guy. I do get passionate up here from time to time. But the reality is, if you don't hear the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God, you're going to miss a part of what Scripture is actually stating. And what does it state? For this is how God loved the world. How did he love the world? That he gave his one and only son. Who was that son? We know him to be Jesus. Jesus is speaking of himself to Nicodemus. That who 
whoever or everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So there, it's only those who believe in Jesus that have eternal life. It's those who reject Christ or decide that they're good enough without him, they can make a better uh, way of their life than, than he could, that do it on their own, that will perish and not have eternal life. That is not a popular message. That's why the churches that are growing across the United States are giving the real positive messages, but not telling you the alternative. I don't like telling you the alternative because I wish it was all flowers, roses, and good smelling things. But there's a, there's a smell of death for those who reject Christ. And that's not a message I'm like, woohoo, there's a smell of death, you know? It's not that we should have an, a happy side of our lives that says, I love the smell of death. You know the possums on the side of the road when you drive by? Ooh, that have been hit, by the way, not the ones that are sitting there looking at you. Or a skunk that's been hit. You know the smell of death. Nobody likes that. It's putrid. That's why Jesus says, whoever or anyone who believes in him will not perish. That's actually good news. But have eternal life. That's why we call the gospel good news. Because it's, in a, it's one of these escape clauses from death of this world. It is the get out of jail free card in the Monopoly game. It is the collect $200. You know, it's, it's, it's this, you got to be a part of this. So then he goes on to say, and I love this, just as important as John 3.16 is, John 3.17 is vitally important. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Catch that. What did God send Jesus to do? To save it, not to condemn it. So what does God send us for today? If we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, if we are his students, we are learning from him, and this is what he came to do, what should we be doing? Right? The same thing. So we weren't sent into, the, God didn't send his son into the world to judge it, and God doesn't, or Jesus doesn't give us his authority and send us into the world to make disciples to judge it. Why? Because there's only one judge who is holy and righteous and perfect and is able to judge fairly. He doesn't judge by the world's standards. He judges by the kingdom of God's standards. It's a whole different kingdom with a whole different set of rules than the world's rules. But he didn't come into the world to judge it. He came into the world to save it. God now, through Jesus, sends his disciples into the world with the same amount of authority and says, you'll do even greater things than you've seen me do. Now, go make disciples. Not of yourselves. This is where we have a lot of pastors who are making disciples of themselves. And the churches are falling across the nation because those pastors end up falling into moral failure, doing stupid stuff, being caught doing things behind closed doors, and have no sense of integrity, not because they're bad people, but because they believed a lie themselves. 
Well, I've got the authority. I've got the power. And then they egotistically take that authority and power in a selfish way and become prideful. Look at me. Look at what I can do. See, we never see Jesus doing that. We see him making claims about himself, which nobody else could ever make. But we see him, instead of going around with a chip on his shoulder, he goes around and washes feet. I love Philippians 2. I mentioned it in my class this morning. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it re- Paul gives us a glimpse into who Jesus is and what he did. In Philippians 2, he's, Paul says that you should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That while being in the very form God, or some translations say, while being God did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. So what is Paul making a statement of? Jesus was God. He's not making a new statement because Isaiah made that same statement about the coming Messiah, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. So what is Emmanuel? God with us. And so God, Isaiah is proclaiming in prophetic tones 700 years before Christ is born that eventually God would come and dwell among us. And John tells us that in his gospel. Two chapters ahead of this in John chapter one, the word became flesh and what? Dwelled among us. You can't make this stuff up. This is, this is the miraculous nature of the inspiration of the Holy Scripture. You can't believe part of it, just a little bit of it, most of it. It's either all or nothing. God didn't give us the choice to reject certain parts of his word. We either accept it. And then here's the thing. There's a written word and there's a living word. You reject the written word, you reject the living word because the living word became the embodiment of the written word. And he who could judge didn't judge, but rather came to save. So what does it mean to judge? Because that's a thing that has been redefined in our culture too. It doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye to somebody else and say there's something wrong in that person's life. Well, I'm not called to judge. I can't be somebody who's just, you know, um, uh, speaking into Who am I? No, the body of Christ is called to hold each other accountable. Judgment is simply put this way. What does a judge do? Think of it in courtroom terms. What does a judge do? He makes a judgment. And that judgment is, you're going to jail or you're going free, right? I mean, that's kind of what that, when you boil it down, of course, you've got the jury and all that. I'm not saying our judicial system is, is different than the theocracies of the world, but in God's kingdom, he is the judge. And he determined who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And he doesn't willy-nilly just go zap, 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 zap. No, actually, he loves us so much he gave us away to him. And he is the only way. In John 14, remember that? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Do you see all of this interwoven connectivity there? And he says, the way to avoid that kind of judgment is through me. I'll take your judgment. And how did he do that? When God poured out his wrath once and for all, he poured it out on Christ on the cross, who took the sin of the world upon himself. That was God's 
judgment of sin and death in this world. There is a final judgment. Because now that God has opened the door of opportunity for us to receive eternal life in a way that had never happened at any other point in time in history prior to that, we are now judged on whether or not we accept and believe his son Jesus Christ and follow him as a disciple. So what does he go on to say? He didn't come to judge the world but to save the world. Verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Did you hear that? I hear this false teaching a lot of times. Yeah, we're going to stand in Believers in Christ are going to stand in judgment on the throne. At the, what does this say? There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. We will see and experience the final judgment, but for those who have believed in Christ for, till their dying breath, there is no judgment. There is this consummation of eternal salvation where we will be made perfect, unlike we are now. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So the reality is, if you reject Christ, the judgment, you've already called judgment on yourself. You've made it. It says, anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And God doesn't take delight in that kind of judgment. In Peter, the books of the New Testament, he says it's not God's will or desire that anyone perish, but that all receive eternal life. Verse 19, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love darkness more than light, for their, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. Wow. Does that happen today? When do most bad things happen? And they're happening more and more in the daylight today because I think we're coming closer to the days of what it was like in Noah's day. For every thought and action of everybody was just evil in Noah's day. That's a scary place to be. And it's not going to happen by flood this next time. <laughs> the reality is, most sins happen in the darkness of night, in closed alleyways, behind closed doors. Why? Because that's what evil does. Evil doesn't like to be exposed as being evil. Evil likes to be portrayed as good to draw you into it. And then when it gets you just into that door, the door closes and there's no more light. Do you catch this? But there's this illusion that there's still light in the darkness. You know what, what happens in the darkness? Now, I'm not talking figuratively, I'm talking literally. When you shut the lights off in a dark room, you're blind for a moment. Am I correct? You're like, oh, wait, don't move. But after a certain while, what happens to your eyesight in a dark place? It adjusts. We live in a culture right now that is adjusted to the dark. 
And we've adopted the ways of darkness and proclaimed that they're light. And Jeremiah and Isaiah and the Old Testament say, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's a scary place to be. It's almost akin to this idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or what we call the unforgivable sin. When you get to the point where you see evil is good and good is evil... It's a dangerous place to be. Because what kind of convincing is it going to take other than God himself opening your eyes? If you have become so jaded and so deceived that you believe that the darkness is light and light is darkness, I'm not saying there's no hope, but that's a very desperate place to be. And I'm, I'm, I'm fearful as a pastor that that's where, that is the route our culture's been on for a few decades, if not more now. And now we are elevating things that we once would have just been mortified to say we're good. I mean, blatant things that you read that are now being elevated to a place of honor in our society. That just even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would have been like, and it's not because the traditions were wrong, it's because our perspective has adjusted to darkness. And we've come to believe that the darkness is actually light. The only reason I'm fearful as a pastor within this culture is because of souls that are being lost and deceived by false teaching. I'm not afraid for myself. I know that God is good. We win in the end. God, through Christ, has set the record straight. There will be a final judgment. I'm not afraid of that, for I know whom I've believed in and am persuaded that he is faithful to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. But I fear for those who don't know, which is why go is such a crucial part of our mission statement. But see, go is not contingent upon me only. What's go contingent on? All of us. We are to go daily with the message of Christ. We are to have the eyes of Christ, the love of Christ, to live the life of Christ, to follow in his footsteps in the ways that he would go. Because when he went, remember I said earlier, he never stayed one place too long. He was always on the go. Why did he see it necessary to constantly be on the go? Because he was about his father's business. And you know what his father's business was? Seeking to save that which was lost. Actually, I didn't have this. Go to Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus' mission statement. Now I've got to pull it up. I hadn't planned on doing this. Luke chapter 4. Do I love the Bible app? Yes. Sorry. No thanks. I don't want to go through all of this. It's like, do you want to give us a comment? Do you want to tell us how much you love us? Later, I'm in the middle of a sermon right now. Gee whiz. Let me find it. Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. 
Go down to verse 18. So Jesus is in his hometown. He has finally traveled to his hometown, and he's doing missionary work there with his disciples. And he decides that he's going to read the scroll for that morning in the synagogue service. And in the Moses seat, at the head of the room, he opens the scroll and reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus is stating, the generations that came before you had long awaited the time that they're now seeing, that you're now seeing today. What Isaiah proclaimed 700 years ago is now coming to fruition. The favor of the Lord is upon you because I'm anointed. Isaiah was talking about the coming Messiah. And he's proclaiming in the synagogue that day, it's me. Instead of being warmly received, he's driven out of town. And I mean driven out of town because they wanted to kill him. It says in that place he could do no miracles because of their lack of belief. And it says he came out on the outskirts of town and he dusted his robe off and brushed the dirt off of his sandals from that town and moved on. And that was a way of saying, I don't even want the dust of this town to be buried with me to the next because you basically called down judgments yourself. Let's go back to what he says here. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but the people of darkness saw more than light, for their actions were evil. Go back a verse before that. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing God's one and only son. And so basically, his dusting his robes out was showing them that they've already proclaimed judgment on themselves for rejecting him. Oh, that Christ would not go out to the edge of Butler. Let's draw it even closer to home. Out the doors of this church and dust his robes off, brush the dust from his sandals and move on. I fear that that's happening in many of our churches across this culture today. And it pains me to say that. Not because we need more numbers, we need more money, but because there are souls being lost. And I think there are souls being lost because there are people who stand on stages much like this not proclaiming the truth. Oh, maybe partial truth, but in our household, in the Lenhart household, partial truth is as much a lie as a whole lie. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it. For fear their sins will be exposed. Verse 21 and the last verse here. But those who do what is right come into the light so that others can see that they're doing what God wants. You know what's funny? I'll give you an example of this. So you ever get these, um, these emails from people that are trying to get you to open up uh, this, this uh, link or whatever? Okay. So I got one not long ago. Uh, and I went up front and told Mary Lou and, and Melissa, who are our front office uh, people, and I said, I am so happy. I got, I got one of these that says, we know what you've been looking at. 
We, we have access to your hard drives and your phones and all of this stuff. And we know every detail of every place you've been. And unless you give us X number of dollars by clicking on this link, we're going to release it and make it public. And I started laughing. And not because I'm perfect. Tr trust me, I'm not. But because I know I've not been anywhere. And I'm like, ha, 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 gotcha. You're bluffing. Because I haven't been anywhere. I haven't been on any sites that are questionable. And I'm like, because we have what's called an open computer or technology policy in our office. It started the day I started staff here. That I'm able to come into your office, you're able to come into my office, and I could do a deep search of your hard drive to see if there's anything on there. There were no windows on any of our office doors when I first came here. And uh, Bob Shea, are you here? Bob's not here today. Bob Shea, oh, here you are, Bob. I, Bob is a woodworker and all that. We got glass, and he took our doors about one or two at a time and put new pieces of glass in there. So there's full transparency that whatever goes on behind closed doors, you can see when you live in the light, you don't have to be worried about the dark. You don't have to be worried about what's exposed. When you live, that's, do you know that's why confession in the New Testament is so vital? Confess your sins to one another. Why is confession so important? It's for two reasons. One, it's, a, it's your admission that you've done something wrong, that you realize, I've done this wrong. And I need to make an admission of that. But secondly, so that that darkness doesn't stay in you. When you confess it, confess it it's a release valve to get it out of you. And Jesus knew, and God knows, that to release it through confession is the first step to healing the darkness and the strongholds and the strangleholds on your life. We have been called to go with that message. And it's a scary place to go into darkness. But when you go as a person of the light, you don't have to fear. For there is one who goes along with you, who is fighting the battle ahead of you, preparing the way for you. All you need to do is go. But it's a dangerous place to go to. Because when you go into dark places as a person of light, you're exposing what's in the dark. Not as a person of judgment, but as a person who goes in to save those from the darkness. But I know that when you go into dark places, those who are hidden in the dark, who don't want their sins exposed, come out oftentimes with their claws bared. And they will tear you up, or at least they'll try to. So does that mean we should not go? I said this last week in the message. When things happened in the world that would cause others to flee throughout the course of human history over the past 2,000 years, where were the Christians to be found? When plagues hit, when wars happened, where did the Christians go? Not to the front lines to fight the enemy of an earthly nature, but to the front lines to save those who were being hurt, who were being affected. That's why we still have chaplains in the military services today to go on the front lines. And yes, they don't wait back at the barracks when the, war, when the battlefield's done. They go to the front lines. Did you know that? 
They're right there. It's a dangerous place to be on the front lines, but we know that even if we die in battle, the victory's won. So what do we truly have to fear? The greatest gift we can give the world is the gift of Christ. And you can't give a gift to somebody if you're not willing to go to them. You just can't. That's why gener generosity involves giving. God gave his only son, and now he expects us to give as well. Generosity involves loving and again, you hear me say this all the time. The love that we hear in the New Testament over and over and over again becomes synonymous with Christian love because that's where it was popularized, this agape love, sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love. It's the love that says love your neighbor as yourself, and sometimes your neighbor could be your enemy. How many of you have neighbors who are not very nice to you? For God so loved the world that he gave and he expects us to give that same love in return even to those who don't deserve it. Generosity involves believing and not partial belief but a complete surrender and belief. Those who believe in him will not perish but receive everlasting life. Who? Everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I see churches that like to become very legalistic and make more hoops to jump through. Uh, we're not one of those churches. What does it take to be saved? Let's look at uh, Paul, Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. If you confess, here's the confession again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I can confess publicly, but it's God who looks on the heart. Do you catch that? Now, I can tell within a certain amount of certainty whether or not somebody's walking in the way, the truth, and the life based on the lifestyle they're living. And it doesn't mean those people are living perfectly. But you get a good sense if somebody maybe is walking in the way and has salvation through Christ Jesus. But here's the contradiction. When you see somebody confessing sins and saying that they're good and they believe in Jesus, but then they're having an adulterous affair or they're living in a homosexual relationship. Well, Brandon, that's a taboo topic. We don't talk about that today. It's not PC. Well, actually, it's biblical. And it's, I'm not trying to be a hater. I would be a hater if I didn't express the truth of Scripture to someone who might not be living the truth. Well, your truth is different from their truth. It's different. But then who has the truth? If you want to get into this deep philosophical discussion on what belief is and what salvation is, you, you, either Jesus is the only way or he's not. There's no middle ground there. You either believe it or you reject it. You can't partially, yeah, I believe he's the only way most of the time. No, he is the only way or he's not. And, and it is, it's a very exclusive statement. 
But Jesus didn't want to leave any confusion. Why? Because he came into a culture of confusion. The Pharisees had set the bar so high and he burdens upon the backs of the people that it was impossible to even achieve some level of certainty that when you died, you would be in heaven. And Jesus came and he cleared the playing field and then he came to Paul, he transformed his life in Acts chapter nine on the road to Damascus. And Paul says, and Jesus says, it's about belief. The writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible to please God without faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Paul says. And lastly, generosity involves seeing. But I don't see God. I don't see the things in the divine realm or the supernatural. No, you don't. You don't. And you may not. You may not ever get a vision. You may not ever have a dream to where you're caught up into that moment through the power of the Holy Spirit. You may not. Some people do but they're few and far between. So what, what does it mean to see? Those who do what is right, John 3, 21, come into the light so that others can see what they're doing, that they're doing what God wants. Do you, do you catch that? Let me say that again. Those who do what is right come into the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. Why is it important for others to see that I'm doing what's right? Because I'm a witness to the living God through Christ Jesus in and through me. But doesn't he say, doesn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount that don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, so give in secret, pray in secret, and then your Father in heaven will reward you. Don't stand on the streets praying really loud prayers, repeating the words over and over. And don't just do like the, the rich people do and dump their offerings in these containers so that everybody can see with fanfare, hey, look, I'm giving $1,000 to the church. Put my name on a pew. <laughs> then I won't give anything at all. Well, we're told that God loves a cheerful and sacrificial giver. Again, I told you this wasn't going to be about tithing. It just slipped in there. I don't know where that came from. I should want others to see what I'm doing. Why? Not so that I can strut my stuff, but so that I could show them the way. If I am a person, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and to be light. And what is light's responsibility? To illuminate. To illuminate what? The darkness, to show it for what it really is. What is salt's responsibility? It's flavor. Have you ever eaten bland food? And you go, salt does something to the blandest, most disgusting food. It makes it palatable. We are to make, we are to, we are to be palatable. Now, it's going to, hear me out here. The message isn't always palatable, but we should be seasoned, we should be gentle, speaking the truth in love, so as to help people understand 
that the message, though, be, though it be salty, it's purifying. That's another thing that salt does. You've heard me state this, I can never find it around here. I miss a good old chunk of country ham. Have you ever heard of country ham? Nobody? <laughs> okay, those of you who may be watching from the South, you know what I'm talking about. It's country ham. Country ham has been just, it's a raw piece of ham that has been so covered and it just sits in salt until it's completely cured. All bacteria is gone, all the wasting is gone. And, and this is before refrigeration, they used to cure meats this way. In Jesus' day, when they would cure fish, they would cure it by drying it out with salt, purifying it that way. And they'd eat salt fish, okay? Country ham. It's really salty, but I love salt. It's good for the blood pressure. And you eat this piece of country ham, it's savory. Salt has a purifying effect. When you, if you do canning in your garden, what do you normally get? Salt. Canning salts, right? Why? Because it kills bacteria. It kills what's bad. We are to be salt. We are to be purifying. We are to be flavorful. We are to be light. Light also has a purifying effect. What is one of the best disinfectants known to man? Sunlight. You remember back in COVID? Oh, wait, we're still in it, sort of. I don't know. They said one of the best disinfectants was sunlight. But sunlight also illuminates what's in the dark. We are to be salt and light. We are to let people see and taste that the Lord is good. I'm going to call our worship team forward to close this out. But suffice it to say, we have been called to go for Christ daily. If you're a believer in Christ, it's not just... The pastor's job, it's everyone's job. You are called to go for Christ daily. Brandon, what does that mean? So, so, so am I supposed to be an evangelist? Well, maybe not in a professional sense or a vocational sense, but we are all called to give witness to Christ. I don't know where you are today, where this message has hit you, or if it's hit you at all. Maybe it's just gone in one ear and out the other. Maybe it's gone over your head. But the duty and the purpose of a believer in Christ is to go with the message of Christ. And you may get discouraged because you may get tons of rejections for speaking the truth of Christ. But you may have one person who says, you know what? Yeah, I want that. And that one person can make a world of difference. You don't have to be a Billy Graham, a Mother Teresa, or any of the other evangelists out there today who are reaching tens of thousands of people. You just need to reach one. I challenge you with this today, as you leave this place, that if you aren't right with Christ. If there's darkness that still has a hold on you, that you'd find deliverance today. Do you know how do you can, it's not you, it's not you uh, foaming at the mouth and giving up the ghost or anything like that. It's just saying, I need to let this go. I need to learn to forgive. 
I need to break the stronghold of anger in my life. I need to break the stronghold of unforgiveness in my life. I need to break the stronghold of addiction in my life. I need to break the stronghold of broken relationships in my life. I need to break the stronghold of pride in my life. It, it, it's, it could be any number of that. I don't know what your vice is, what the enemy knows that he can get you on. I don't know what that is, but you do. And you have every authority and every power to take control and to surrender to Christ. The choice is yours. God is not going to make you make that choice. But the enemy will keep you in that bondage as long as he can. It's hard to go if you're stuck in the darkness. Because that means you'll be exposed by the light. You have to be in the light. And you have to take the light into the dark world. That is what North Main is about. What we desire to be about let your life so live like a shining light that others, not, that others won't just see you, but they'll see Christ in you. Father, we, that's our prayer today. That's our desire. That's our hope. That's, that's really where we find our strength and our courage. Father, we're embarrassed sometimes if we're being honest. Because we don't want to be seen like Nicodemus. We want to we do things in the dark. We don't want anybody to see or hear us because we're afraid we're going to be judged as being holy rollers or haters or conspiracy theorists or just weirdos. But God, I remember Jesus said and in the Gospels that if we're ashamed of you, you'll be ashamed of us. <laughs> and I don't ever want you to be ashamed of me. Help me to overcome my insecurities, the bondages, the dark things that hold on to me that try to pull me down and help me to break free from that through the power of your Holy Spirit so that I could truly live a delivered life through Christ Jesus. If the Son has set us free, remind us we're free indeed. And help us to go with a message of truth and honesty and love in all humility and gentleness to a world that is in the dark, that has been persuaded for so many years by the enemy to believe that good is evil and evil is good. Help us to go and show a contrast to that in such a way that people can break free from the darkness. And help us to not just set it in our calendars to go at this specific time, but let us be on our way daily, whether it's going about our work routine during the day, going to the grocery store. Let us be looking for opportunities not to invade people's space, but God, to allow your Holy Spirit to invade our space and to touch another life. Forgive us where we failed you, where we didn't follow a prompting of your Holy Spirit to go give a word of encouragement to a stranger, to not help that person in need that we've come across that we felt like we should, to not go offer a word of hope and forgiveness to someone who's hurt us. Forgive us where we failed to enter into your grace because 
we don't believe we deserve it. Do a miracle in this place today. Do a miracle through the TV, through the radio today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.